This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Genocide and colonisation are ongoing processes that still continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to Ospol Snackpod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies serve you up bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a side of crispy memes. We are also the official podcast of the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group, so if you like shitposting, Ospol, and Facebook groups, you should definitely go and check it out. My name is Zach Snack, and with me, as always, is member of my inner sanctum. Hey, I'm Noon. How you going? How are you today, Zach? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I took a day off work yesterday. Just to like kick back, take it easy, and watch Point Break, which was nice. um, a really excellent decision that I feel very good about. How about, how about you? How are you doing? Uh, yeah, dying, dying slowly and painfully. Um, mm, I, I've mm. been intermittently sick for the last month, and it feels like it's intermitting again. Or yeah, so hopefully I'll That's survive right, this this entire episode. Um, if there's just like dead silence for like ten minutes, I've probably just passed out. But it, it should be fine. But uh, um, hopefully, well, I don't... you know, if you need if you need me to cover for you while you pass out, just give me some kind of signal. Maybe um, uh, hit the desk with your forehead. Yeah, cool. Like I can that. do that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, but um, hopefully, I do stay awake because we have three wonderful new supporters on our Patreon who want that good, good snack pod content. Woo. So yeah. I wanted to give shout outs to Roma and to Jacob slash Charlie and to Gabriel. Thank you so much for supporting the show. It's really lovely. We love having Patreon supporters. It's nice to know that people like what we're doing. And yeah, thank you so much for supporting us. It means a lot. And we do have plans for the show where, that require money. Um, so like each, each extra dollar a month does help us get towards a few couple of exciting longer term things that we're working towards. So Thank you so much. Uh, if you do want to support us financially, you can do it over on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You get an extra monthly bonus episode, plus some other cool stuff. Go and check it out. Okay. Well, what are we going to talk about this week, Noom? There's really only been one thing on everybody's lips. There's it's only one thing that we could talk about. The story. The story of the week. The big story. Especially across the Australian left, we are, of course, talking about Jordan Shanks, a.k.a. Friendly Geordies, Australia's foremost political YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and his ongoing spat with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has been going back and forth on Twitter for a while now. So we just thought we'd dive in and do um, basically a full hour um, digging into the ins and outs of this Twitter war because I think that's what everybody wants to hear. Absolutely. Um, so should we jump in? Uh, just before we get to Friendly Geordies, I do. I have another story. Um, so I might just do a little entree before we get there. Oh, yep, yeah, sure. No, go for it. Yeah, so this is a really depressing story on a number of levels. Um, listeners, I hope you, like I, had managed to completely forget that Mark Latham got elected to the New South Wales Upper House. Um, I didn't. I follow him on Twitter in order to make myself angry deliberately. He is, in fact, uh, a, a parliamentarian. Just goes to show what a fucking terrible country this is. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> he... Um, he is bringing a very evil bill to the New South Wales Upper House, uh, which will amend three acts. And basically what it will do is define, quote, gender fluidity, and then prohibit anything about it being mentioned in schools. Um, it's classic Mark Latham, One Nation bullshit, just like culture war, anti-trans shit. 
Um, but it's also extremely badly designed legislation, as far as I can tell. Not that I'm like a lawyer or anything, but like it says, A, you absolutely must not mention anything about gender fluidity in schools. But at the start of each year, schools have to have a meeting where they will tell all of the parents what they're going to teach about gender fluidity and then give the parents a right to opt out. So it sort of seems kind of silly. Maybe One Nation don't have the world's best legislative drafters. Who knows? Um, and obviously it's extremely evil because it's going to lead to uh, deaths of trans and gender diverse students and teachers. And there's going to be a lot of people who will be hurt in other ways, emotionally and physically, because of it. Um, but it's but isn't part of the, the idea that basically, I mean, you won't be able to acknowledge the existence of trans people. So if you're a trans like teacher or staff member at a school, like you won't be able to tell the kids about your identity but if the if they find out about it and then it's discussed you could also be fired be fired yeah absolutely um the bill was um sent off to committee but it's a committee chaired by mark latham so cool we'll see how that goes ridiculous and terrifyingly it might get up i actually think it's unlikely that it will but it could um i suspect the liberals and nationals will split on it um and i think labor will vote against it because no one hates mark latham more than labor um but yeah the the issue is that even if it doesn't get up this is going to lead to months and months and months of talking about how evil trans people are and um how How dangerous they are for children exactly and And so like like, the best case scenario is it doesn't get up, but it still damages a bunch of people's lives. Yeah, I don't think that there's any way that this bill gets up likely. Um, but like you, you've hit the nail on the head. Like this is just uh, Latham's way of trying to like put this issue in the political spotlight, and he's just a permanent one hundred percent full time bigot. Like that's all mm. that he does with his time. He's he tweets way more than he fucking develops policy. Yeah. He's a troll. He doesn't have a website. He only has a Twitter, which I find very funny. But He's a vicious fucking troll and an absolute blight on this country. He's, for my money, the single worst person in Australian politics. Wow. Fucking hands down. I mean, could well be, yeah. Uh, This is probably a bit bit too deep of a nerd thing for me to go into a huge amount of detail, but something I find quite amusing about this whole situation is that the bill uh, frames it in terms of teachers not being uh, ideological and not teaching the ideology of gender fluidity or whatever. I hate that. I hate that that language. Something that I think, again, this is a deep nerd thing, but uh, Slavoj Žižek says, as far as I can tell, ideology is the beliefs that are so like hard-baked in that you don't even notice them. And that mm. the gender binary has been ideological for such a long time. It's been just like hard-baked into society in this really fundamental way that people can't even like question it. And at, in the last couple of decades, because of like, you know, expanding trans activism and stuff, the ideology is being challenged by it's being dragged out of ideology and into this like visible space of beliefs that people are uh, like no there is a a gender binary that's the only thing right it it stops being assumed and default and now it's being challenged and yeah i just think it's interesting that latham is like oh this ideology is terrible because he's actually trying to reinforce the ideology of the gender binary uh anyway uh, that- no, yeah, claiming that like talking about it makes it ideological is is so twisted because uh, like Latham acting as if his perspective is totally unideological is yeah. as you say is like 
ahistorical and fundamentally misunderstands the concept of ideology in the first place. But he's the one literally making policy about it. His policy yeah. is, you can't talk about this issue. And then he'll turn around and talk about, ah, oh, p- political correctness gone mad. They totally. want to shut down free speech. This man is such a fucking disgusting hypocrite. Yep. And I just want to, he's a giant pimple and I want to pop him. Um, before um, we, uh, I reckon we should finish this story and move on to Jordan Shanks, but I just wanted to finish up with a quote from David Shoebridge. The idea that we should be firing teachers or counsellors who support trans and gender diverse children asking for help is obscene. Parliament should work hard to ensure counselling and other support is reflective of the needs of students, not give a platform to an obsessed transphobic bigot. Yep. I think he's put that it. really well. And yeah. sorry, I like I know you want to put a pin in this story, but I had one other quote that I Please, wanted to yeah, read yeah. because Latham has try- been trying to frame this issue as if it's about parents' rights, like the right mm, of parents yeah. to not have their kids exposed to the concept of trans people existing, which is fucked. But uh, I saw a tweet from Georgie Stone, who is a young trans activist here in Australia. She's incredible, and I highly recommend you following her on Twitter at Georgie Stone 16. Um, and she responded to this by saying, I would not be who I am right now, happy, successful, confident without my parents. Their love and support has made everything possible for me. Please don't pretend that you know what is best for trans kids. We do. Listen to us or be quiet. That's it. Okay, Zach, so why don't we uh, move on to the Friendly Geordies content. Oh, sure, yeah. No, just before we do, um, I've got uh, a potluck from a listener um, that was submitted oh, nice. this week that I wanted to play. Potluck, where you bring the snacks. Uh, so this one was submitted by Holly, who is host of the Every Second Weekend podcast, which we have shouted out on this podcast before. Um, she is also co-host of My Life. So, um, I say a listener, this is from my partner, probably weird to say I got a potluck from a listener, but anyway, um, Holly heard us talking about the changes to, uh, childcare support last week and, um... Uh, she thought that there was uh, something missing from our conversation about that. So she wrote in and uh, and uh, let's play that now. Okay. Uh, something that has been bugging me since you guys were talking about the new childcare regulations in stage four lockdown is that the mainstream conversation about childcare pretty much ignores a huge part of the industry, which is private nannies. Um, I've worked on and off as a nanny like my whole working life, as have so many women that I know. Um, I got into nannying after working at a childcare center that was just so fucked. They paid me $16 an hour, constantly enrolled more children than they were legally permitted to do according to like care to child ratio guidelines and just didn't have uh, so many supplies that we needed. Like we would all bring in our own baby wipes because the owner refused to buy more than like a certain number of packs per month. So uh, I left that shithole and got into nannying, which seemed a lot, you know, more rewarding, which so many people do. Um, Some do it like me because they hated working in institutionalized childcare and some because working in institutionalized childcare is just not available to them for like myriad reasons. Um, While some nannies work through agencies, so, 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 so many work privately and have completely unregulated hours, no leave, and are paid under the table. Um, You're also just so isolated as a nanny, like, compared to hospital jobs where I've had where, you know, those with similar working conditions. Uh, There's just no co-workers to turn to for support, no such thing as HR, so you are, like, often just generally have really weird shit asked of you. Um... 
and it's basically impossible to know how many people are making a living as a nanny at any time. It's like trying to figure out how many people have successfully faked their own deaths. Uh, because of all this, like, the work is so insecure and these nannies are so vulnerable. And I think it's mostly not addressed because it's an industry made up mostly of women. Um, particularly young women. And it's so clear in childcare, like the childcare as essential work guidelines that people don't recognize looking after children as real work. But um, as someone who works as both like in a corporate job and in childcare, I can tell you childcare is just like pretty much way more challenging across the board. Um, I don't know if I have a point. I guess maybe remember when you think about the childcare industry and think about how fucked and sexist it is that it's probably even more fucked and sexist than you already thought and is already being talked about. Um, just like respect childcare workers because like it can be a really rewarding gig but it's also a real slog and is made even more so when it's underappreciated. Cool. Thanks Holly for your perspective on that. Um, I think that's a really important aspect of the discussion that is missing. Um, and when you're talking about like insecure work and uh, casualized work, like, I mean, the nannying industry is basically like a childcare black market, basically. Mm. Um, and obviously, as Holly says, it's really hard to keep tabs on because it's it, almost entirely private, um, but not just, you know, not just that it's private, that people are working on their own. It's really hard to um, get a picture of what it's like to work in those positions. Um, and Holly also touched on something there that I think is um, ties in very neatly to what we've been describing noon when we say that a lot of this government's financial responses to the crisis have been highly gendered. Um, and mm. we're, usually we're talking at a federal level there, but when we're talking about childcare here in Victoria, because these are the changes that we were talking about, um, the way that basically yeah, only certain workers, you know, considered essential are able to get access to childcare. Other people who are working from home, it's just like, oh, yeah, you can also just look after a kid. That's not going to put any yeah. extra demands on your time. It's just such – it betrays so clearly this idea of like, oh, no, looking after a child is nothing. You can do it at the same time as doing a full time – a full day's worth of work yeah. at, at your regular job. It's just a, like a pretty ridiculous concept to, I think, anybody who's had to look after a child. I also think that line that Holly said is that, like, you know, next time you're thinking about how fucked and sexist it is, just maybe assume that it's more fucked and sexist. And I feel like that is a rule that we have um, already been following uh, in this show, but it's good to get a reminder that it's, e like, one even more. Yeah. For sure. And, like, as, you know... <laughs> Because it's, uh, as Holly said, an industry uh, composed almost entirely of women. It's something mm. that you and I don't have any personal experience with. Yeah. So that's exactly the kind of thing that we love to get potlucks about because that's a perspective that neither Noon or I could have brought to that story. So yep. I really appreciate Holly taking the time to um, uh, give us some more info about that. And you, listener, totally. if, you, if there's anything, any issues that you have personal experience with or a great deal of knowledge about that you'd like to contribute to, please um, send in a bit of audio of yourself to ospolsnackpot at gmail.com. We try to encourage people to keep it under a minute, but most of the time potlucks end up being about three. It seems to be the magic number for, um, <laughs> for adding your perspective. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, if it needs to be a little bit longer, that's how it is. But um, please send in your submissions. Uh, we love to get them. All right. Is it Friendly Geordie's time? 
Uh, almost. Uh, were you going to do a quick rundown of um, the Corona situation? Yes, true. All right, let's do that quickly. All right, do you want to play that sting? You bet. Hey, man, I've got some more beers. Oh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. No, come on, we're having another round of Coronas. So I've got a couple of uh, good stories, I guess. Um, one is that case numbers are dropping significantly. Oh, was this going to be our positivity corner as well? Yeah, yeah, it was. But I, I sort of didn't realize that when I was writing notes. So I've got bad and good kind of mixed together. But yeah, let's, let's do positivity. Let's do that well, one first. <laughs> we didn't have anything else positive, so. Positivity. So, case numbers are dropping significantly in Victoria, uh, which is great. We have had less than 200 new cases in 24 hours for the first time in ages, and it all seems to be going in the right direction. Um, So that's great, and people are talking about, like, double-digit figures in the next month or so. Very cool. Um, Unfortunately, numbers of people who are being tested are also dropping uh, in in Melbourne because of the lockdown. So, listeners, if you have any symptoms, please go and get checked uh, because they need to test more people. So, uh, some more positivity corner. Uh, The rent eviction moratorium in Victoria is going to be extended to the end of the year, which is great. Uh, So, people can't be evicted until the end of the year, and also rent can't be increased until the end of the year in Victoria. So, that's fabulous. Um, The government's also putting in $600,000 for advocacy groups to help support vulnerable tenants. Not sure exactly where that's going, so watch that space, but it's good. And they're also spending $31 million on new mental health centres to help people with coronavirus-related stress. Uh, unclear exactly what they're going to do. I guess they're going to be like headspacey kind of things. Um, but mm. yeah, that seems like a, a, a good move in my opinion. Um, and just one other, this is not a positivity corner, but it's been uh, some political nonsense. And it's been so nonsensey, it, it probably doesn't really <laughs> need to mention, but it's all that the Labour Party has been talking about this week. It's been about a vaccine. Um, Scott Morrison said that he had made a deal quote, a deal, with AstraZeneca, a company who's collaborating with Oxford University to develop a vaccine. And he said he'd signed an agreement that they would provide a dose for free for every Australian should the vaccine be proven safe and effective. Uh, But the Labour Party and AstraZeneca quickly came out to say that that is not true at all. It's not a deal. It's actually a memorandum of understanding, which is to say it's a deal that they will make a deal. It's really not very important. The Labour Party have been just, like, not getting any air whatsoever. So they've just been like, You said it was a deal! It's not a deal! It's a memorandum! Blah, blah, blah! Um, but, like, the government ministers did use the word deal and agreement a lot. But it's a very silly argument. And, like, probably we will sign an actual agreement shortly. But, yeah. Anyway, um, vaccines, hopefully it, it works. Fingers crossed. Uh, well, now it's kind of a bit more of like a negativity corner with the uh, following corona news. Um, mm. So a worker at a Brisbane youth detention center has tested positive for COVID. Um, and I guess just before we kick uh, kick off this little story, I, I just kind of wanted to flag the euphemistic language around prisons for children. Um, yes. The... This youth detention center is a prison for children. And all of the reporting throughout this, like, refers to kids variously as, like, inmates, um, offenders, and, yeah, these places as, like, youth justice centers or whatever. We're talking about child prisons, and we're talking about children who are in prison. So I just kind of wanted to say that up the top. Yeah, totally. So at this Brisbane 
youth, you know, this Brisbane child prison, there are 127 kids now locked down in isolation. Um, and it looks like they're going to basically be in solitary for two weeks, Jeez. which solitary confinement is just basically incalculably damaging to, for mental health. Like it is just one of the worst things that um, prisons do to people, um, let mm. alone kids. Um the lockdown also means that there's not going to be any educational programs. So that's like even extra like mental strain on the kids. Um, some of which are only uh, like 13 years old, I think, is the youngest mm. um, people who are imprisoned in this place. And about 40% of the kids are indigenous, um, which you know comes as no surprise. Um, but so throughout the last six months in Victoria... Like, we haven't really talked about um, the prison situation in connection mm. to COVID that much. But um, last month, six prisons in Victoria were placed into lockdown um, at various points. And there have been other, like, other child prisons have come really close to outbreaks. So there were, like, there were eight cases linked to the Malmesbury Youth Justice Centre. Um, I just can't get over that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What an amazing Youth euphemism that is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was uh, like, those were all cases in staff, not in kids. And so they were locked down. And I don't think there's a risk of an outbreak there anymore. But they obviously came very close. And over at the Parkville Youth Justice Centre, um, a new kid who was arriving tested positive while they were in a mandatory two-week quarantine. So like they caught it in time. But again, like just on a fucking knife's edge. And now... Same thing is happening. The Brisbane Youth Detention Centre, like they're trying to evacuate kids kind of as quickly as possible. But like, yeah, they're just, they're right on the brink of an outbreak because obviously being in prison puts you at a massively higher risk of contracting the virus. Mm. Social distancing is way harder to do. Um, and we, even though we haven't had a serious outbreak in a prison here in Australia, there have been multiple overseas. Mm. Um, one kind of really dark tangent is... Um, a San Quentin prison in California where over at one point over a third of the prison population was infected. And one of the knock-on effects from that has been, obviously it's wildfire season over in the States at the mm, moment. California mm. gets really hard hit. And a lot of the firefighters are, are basically slave labor from prisons yeah. and they don't have enough prison slave labor to fight the fires because a bunch of prisoners have COVID. Like it's just so dark. Just disgusting. Um, yeah. Yeah. This presents a much higher risk for indigenous people as well, because we're talking mm. about um, massively disproportionate rates of incarceration, but you know other underlying health conditions as well. Mm. We've got mm. a quote here from Narita Waite, who's the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. He says, once the pandemic enters, it's going to spread like a wildfire and we're going to see Aboriginal people being diagnosed with COVID-19. Because if they're underlying health conditions such as chronic health disease, diabetes, that will see deaths in custody. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. I know it's kind of a truism by this point. We've said it probably every single week since the pandemic started, but like this is just showing the injustices and inequities that were already here and like the over incarceration of Aboriginal people and the under uh like under supply of medical care for Aboriginal people and like the food deserts that uh we enforce on Aboriginal people. Like, there's just all of these different types of injustice that are coming together to mean that they will die disproportionately from this disease in prisons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
the flip side, I guess, is that I find kind of interesting is in finding this you know, in a few cases throughout the crisis is that it sort of opens up these things to public discussion that otherwise never would have been on the table. So you've got advocates at the moment calling for the release of mm. prisoners back into the community. Mm. Um, I've got a quote here from the Australian Lawyers Alliance. They say, nonviolent prisoners, prisoners who are on remand simply because they have no home address, and vulnerable prisoners such as those over 65 should be released now. The Victorian government should already have done this. It's hard to picture this kind of being a mainstream demand before COVID. Whether or mm. not we'll see any action on it um, from like the Victorian government or other state governments is another question. But it's now kind of being put out there um, in a way that it wasn't before, which I think is you know promising. Um, and one of the other... Just before we, before we get off this, one of the other... Um, interesting things that I came across while researching for this story is that um, throughout COVID, there's been a pretty steep decline in new prisoners. Huh. Um, so in Victoria... I guess there's probably less the, petty crime going on. Well, I'm sure there's a number of, there's like the, a number of things contributing to this. Yeah. Um, uh, so in, in Victoria, we've seen the prison population decrease by about 1,000 people yeah. since the start of the pandemic, which is a hmm. pretty big chunk of the, popul- yeah. of the prison population. Um and so, well, the article I was reading said that this was partially because of, uh, like, hearing times being massively extended. So that's not exactly like a good reason. That's you know more people kind of waiting around uh, to be to have their cases heard. But also, apparently, judges are far more often putting people, giving people bail as opposed to putting them right. uh, like on remand and then making them wait in prison until their court cases come up. Sure. Basically, because there's a massively increased risk of sending someone to prison now mm. you could be potentially condemning them, to, get them COVID to death yeah yeah while they yeah while they wait to just go and have get out of a parking fine or whatever it is yeah mm. yeah exactly um so you know i think that's that was kind of an, an interesting thing um but yeah so we'll keep an eye on that situation in the brisbane youth detention center and um hopefully things turn out okay there all right, now we've got one more corona-related segment before we get to Friendly Geordies. Fashy Australia. Yeah, so um, just going to run through this. Uh, we'll try to run through it relatively quickly, which uh, I think this is an, in, in a pretty interesting story. So at the beginning of this month, beginning of August, the Victorian state government introduced uh, like basically harsh new penalties for people who didn't self-isolate after being told that they had to, which so, you know, after they either tested positive or being a close contact to someone else who had tested positive. So they um, bumped up the fines to almost $5,000 for like not being at home or $20,000 for multiple breaches. Mm-hmm. But also they you know, give, gave the police powers to like detain repeat offenders. That's in quotation marks in my notes, if you couldn't hear that. Um, so the context of this was announced in, it came just after... Dan Andrews held a press conference saying that the Australian Defence Force had done 3,000 door knocks of people who were supposed to be self-isolating and they found that 800 were not at home. So this is, and this was a really big story at the time. This was across all of the major news outlets. You know, Andrews said this in one of his like daily press conferences. And it's like such a commonly cited statistic that I, I typed Vic 800 into Google and it auto-completed and knew exactly what I was looking yeah, wow. for. So this is like... You know, and obviously those—that's a pretty bracing number to hear. That over a quarter of people who were supposed to be self-isolating after testing positive or being close to someone who had were not at home. That was very worrying, and so there were you know front-page headlines about this shit. 
But new info from Victoria Police has just been released this week. They said that before these harsher punishments were introduced, they had only fined 26 people wow. who, ha- who was, hadn't been self-isolating when asked to. And after the, the harsh penalties were introduced, they've fined 16 people. So a total of 42 out of 30,000 people who have been directed to self-isolate since April. So those numbers look very, very, very different. different right? Yeah, for sure. So what the cops are saying is that until last week that they had no way of cross-referencing the the, the data from the Department of Health and Human Services mm. ab- about who'd been directed to self-isolate and the people who didn't answer when door-knocked by the ADF. So they basically hadn't been able to check those numbers against each other, which I think they seem to want to partially try to explain away this sort of massive discrepancy in numbers by basically saying that, oh, no, we just didn't have the information to go and go after the people initially. But they've also said very clearly that, no, 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 like a bunch of those were just people were just in their backyard. Like, right. yeah, I'm going to sure. quote here from the police deputy commissioner, the guy who's in charge of like public health operations. He says, quote, some of them were in the shower when we knocked on the door. Some of them were in the shed out back building something. So they're not all necessarily out of their home. Our experience is the majority of people are doing the right thing. And that is that is from all of our engagement. Um, which, uh, shout out to our broken clock from last week, David Lineholm, who uh, said something. Yeah, well, you know, not quite exactly the same, but he was like, this is ridiculous. What if you're on the toilet and can't answer the door when mm. the Australian Defence Force come knocking? Which... I thought it was a decent point then, and it's a decent point now. Yeah. Um, So I think it's worth mentioning uh, as well that when these numbers were, like those ADF numbers that, uh, you know, we've done 3,000 door knocks, 800 went home, that these, that like when the ADF reported that, when Andrews talked about it, and when the media reported on it, they used that language. People were not at home. Mm, Clearly mm. what they actually meant was they didn't answer the door. So this is just like, something that was swallowed hook, line, and sinker and regurgitated uncritically by media and became this huge thing about, again, pushing this narrative about it's individual people being selfish and doing the wrong thing that is stopping us from being able to beat this pandemic. Mm. When, you know, as we've been harping on about frequently throughout this show, that it's much more important to focus on the broader systemic causes behind these clusters, which obviously come down to things about class and working conditions much more than they do about people just being selfish or like Mm. not wanting to follow the rules. That's right. Yeah. People who need to go to work so they don't get evicted or whatever. I mean, I know in theory they can't, but like, yeah, yeah. It's all sorts of stuff going on. All right. And with that, is it time for shit post of the week? Friendly Geordies? Yeah, well, we we got so many friendly Geordies shitposts this week. It has just been wall to wall Ospol shitposting shitposts of the week of friendly Geordies. Um, but we are going to cover them in our deep dive into friendly the friendly Geordie situation. So I thought we would give a shitpost of the week to an unrelated uh, one, and this goes to Leah, who has won multiple shitposts of the week. And um, this is some original content, so thank you very much, Leah. And this is that meme format where there's like a. Uh, it's a photo of some water and there's a big like cruise liner going past uh, in the background and in the front ground foreground there's a guy on a uh a surfboard holding an umbrella and like windsurfing with an umbrella 
and Leah has marked the sh- the ship COVID nineteen job seeker over policing of marginalized populations corruption recession, and then down the bottom uh, the guy on the on the surfboard is labeled Oi Morrison you simp, and um, this is obviously uh, I mean it's a story from last week but it was just. It was pretty big. Uh, Bill Shorten <laughs> went on Insiders last week on Sunday and um, called Scott Morrison a simp. Um, and then when uh, the interviewer was like, what does that mean? He was like, oh, you know, weak. Soft. Um, soft is what he said. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Bill Shorten desperately trying to stay relevant. There was a good tweet I saw that was like, Bill Shorten, how did I do? 19-year-old media advisor. Epic works. Uh, very based. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> good shit. I mean, amazing that, yeah, it, like, really the only time he pops up in the news these days is when he goes on an, in, like, an interview show and misuses internet slang. Mm. I rewatched that video of him rapping, the rap battle with Ray Hadley. Uh, oh, and Jesus. i got to say, Shorten's rap was surprisingly competent. Uh, <laughs> it may have been better than Real Shit Albo that, that we did, um, yeah, which mean, isn't hard, but I wouldn't expect it from Bill Shorten. I mean, yeah, like, I I just don't think, like, the meme sort of response to this of everyone being like, haha, it's so funny that he used an internet word, just ignores, like, a whole bunch of, you could actually have a kind of interesting conversation about it, I think, maybe, like, the origins of that term have a pretty problematic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like, connotations? Connotations, I guess, yeah, um, in the sense that, yeah, you know, it's it's about, like, men who are nice to women, do stuff for women. There was, I saw this, like, our relationships their autonomy. post. Yeah. yeah, I saw this our relationships post lately. It was like, my boyfriend won't be nice to me because his friends will call him a simp. He, like, ref- <laughs> it was about... Jeez. This, like, so bad. <laughs> yeah, like, this guy, like, refusing to, like, get his girlfriend stuff from the, like, fridge if she wanted it, for example, because he can't be seen to be a simp what in a front of, of his friends. Like, and I, I just don't know if that, the like, if people understood the context and meaning yeah. of that term, I don't know if, like... Short, I don't think Shorten would be using it in the first place. Yeah. And there would be a conversation about whether or not it's appropriate for him to be using that kind of language to yeah. describe like, the Morrison Prime Minister. And, yeah. but, like, you know, I mean, anyway, I, I just, yeah, it's very, it's a very, very silly distraction. And again, like, but even watching it, like, Shorten can't even turn this clearly pre prepared. Mm. zinger into any kind of effective political attack like it's just yeah. it falls totally flat even when you're watching it and then he can't even describe what it means it's anyway very we forgot silly to shout stuff. this out at the top of the show but i did a guest appearance on not good enough uh last week uh listeners go check them out they're a, a podcast similar to us they do ospol related shit and we talked about the simp thing and uh one of the uh one of the hosts on that made the point that the the way that Shorten delivered the line was extremely funny. And he was like, yes, well, Scott Morrison is <coughs> a simp. Um, and like, he was just, he, he clearly thought it was a hilarious, great move, uh, which, you know, people fucking, are talking about him for the palm, first time like, in six months. So like, he's looking down like, <laughs> speaking of problematic language, should we get to friendly Geordies? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, there's just one other last thing I wanted to cover off um, before we do that, which is okay. our First Nations story for the week. Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so this is about paperless arrest laws. Mm-hmm. 
Um, doesn't that just off the bat sound fucking fantastic? This weekend, as we're recording, is the uh, Northern Territory state election. We haven't done any coverage of it, um, which is... Honestly, I feel like we've maybe dropped the ball on that a little bit. We did mm, talk mm. about talking about it, but we didn't end up talking about it. Um, well, maybe next week we can talk about the results, which we we'll, should get tomorrow. So. Yeah, um, and it's a very, like, um, knife's edge, anybody contest kind of election. Ha- mm. Like, most of the coverage I read of it has been, like, nobody really knows what's going to happen. And there's a whole there's bunch a of bit really of an fucked- idea, commentary, that it might sort of reflect how people are feeling about the trade-off between, like, a coronavirus health lockdown versus an economic lockdown and borders and shit. There's some people mm. being like, ah, this will indicate the mood of the country or whatever, which, eh. Yeah, maybe. It, like, I don't think that um, any kind of result from the Northern Territory is going to accurately reflect the feelings of the population because no. they've got extremely low turnout in a lot of communities in the state, which is a whole another issue that we can mm. get into mm. in another episode. But so, these paperless arrest powers, which um, the cops have in the Northern Territory, they basically they allow cops to arrest people for minor offences instead of issuing an on-the-spot fine. Um, and then they can hold them oh, for cool. four hours. Yeah, very cool. So they can hold people for four hours without charge or doing any paperwork and then release them as they see fit. Um, these laws were introduced by the country Liberal Party, who are, you know, another of the coalition's sort of weird offspring, like mm-hmm. the Liberal National Party in Queensland in the Northern Territory. You've got the country Liberal Party. Um so the country Liberal Party introduced these laws in uh, at the end of twenty fourteen. And then basically, about six months after they were introduced, a Walpuri man named Kumanjai Langdon died in police custody after being arrested by uh, in, under these paperless arrest laws for, quote, drinking in a regulated place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're talking about you, you can arrest people for minor offenses instead of fining them, we're obviously talking about shit like drinking in public. So these laws massively disproportionately affect Aboriginal people as is obviously to be expected in exactly the same way as like Victoria's public drunkenness laws did, which we've discussed at length in this podcast. Last year, 87% of people arrested under paperless arrest laws were Indigenous. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just doesn't get any clearer than that. The Northern Territory coroner said at the time that the powers should be repealed. He said, quote, it's no coincidence that the first man to die under the laws is an Aboriginal man. It's true. So that was 2014, 2015. Labor is now in power in the Northern Territory. The current chief minister, which is their equivalent of a state premier, is a guy called Michael Gunner. Now, when he was in opposition in 2015, he promised to repeal the paperless arrest powers in a speech at Gama Festival. Mm. Uh, what do you think happened next, Noon? Ah, <laughs> oh, well, I can only imagine that he repealed them uh, in line with the promise that he had made publicly to a big gathering of First Nations people. Well, Noon... Hang on to your hat, because I've got a shocking <laughs> reveal for you. Labor has retracted that promise uh, ahead of the, uh, this this weekend's state election, and they have said that they won't pursue it if they get re-elected. The chief minister's office released a statement saying that Gunner's position had changed, quote, during this term after consultation with police. Oh, that's so disgusting. What the fuck? Yeah, also, like, may- Northern Territory has such a high proportion of Aboriginal people, uh, like, compared to the other states but they don't like the cops are a very small group why are you trying to fucking (laughs) appease them you piece of shit like even from like raw political new or whatever i don't know just what a fucking terrible person tough on crime some real tough on crime shit um 
So I've got a quote here from David Woodruff from the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. He says, quote, There is no reason to keep this law on the books for police. Priority should be given to alternatives like the sobering up shelters and community-led responses, as we've seen from Larrakia Nation and Tangatiera Council. So, yeah, I mean, essentially these paperless arrest laws are aimed at trying to, quote-unquote, combat the, you know, sort of alcohol abuse epidemic in the Northern Territory. Um, But as David Woodruff says, obviously this carceral punitive approach doesn't work. What happens is people end up dying instead. Um, And so I I did just a a little bit of research. Um, I wanted to find out kind of what he was talking about when talking about the Larrakia Nation, for example. Uh, And I found a submission that they made to uh, a 2017 review into the Northern Territory's alcohol laws. They said, quote, the time has passed for looking only at the impacts of alcohol consumption and supply side measures. It is time now to move the ambulance to the top of the cliff to look through with increased scrutiny and purpose to the reasons why that alcohol assumption occurs. So, yeah, I, you know, obviously these like just punishing people for drinking alcohol is not in any way solving the problem. Yeah. And like this is a tale as old as time when it comes to law enforcement, like they're just, they have one mechanism, they have one lever, and they keep on pulling it, expecting to get a different result, and all they do is hurt people. Mm. Um, obviously, what needs to happen is a much broader societal, governmental, policy, social response to this issue that actually addresses the underlying causes, as opposed to just throwing people in jail without charge, without paperwork. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that's, that I saw mentioned as I was looking into this was um, the lack of availability of rehab for people who want it, but mm. especially rehab in communities. So, you know, mm. a lot of uh, rehabilitation programs are residential, meaning that people basically can't continue their lives. So they might have to lose their job if they want to go to rehab. So you they know, can't the look lack after of their family if they're doing that or like... Yeah. So the suggestion is that rehab sort of needs to be rethought in these cases Mm. um, to give people options to go through these programs while enabling them to also continue to live their lives. Um, And there's this uh, ABC article that I was reading about this uh, review into the Northern Territory's alcohol laws. Uh, And uh, I just wanted to read this quote, which I thought was good. It said, says, efforts to address alcohol abuse should be part of a broad strategy targeting the social determinants of health, said Donna Archie from the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress. That includes poverty, social exclusion, racism, unhealthy early childhood development, housing, education, and employment, she said. So obviously that sounds like a huge task, Mm. but at the end of the day, like it's not just alcohol abuse that you're going to be tackling here, right? And as we've talked about many times before, like potentially handing land back over to Aboriginal people and things like that, that like are sort of responses that Australia can't, as a a country, can't countenance. Can't even conceive Um, of. But yeah, 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 as you said, self-determination will do more for, you know, reducing alcohol consumption and other like social and health ills than fucking putting people in jail without snatching them off the street of paperwork yeah it's fucking ridiculous without charge yeah um so that's pretty disappointing from northern territory labor um it's like they are the favorites to get back in but it's looking likely there's going to be some kind of hung parliament situation Mm -hmm. because um bit of a tangent but like the country liberal party um who were in power in uh 2014 15 uh 
they only have two seats out of 25 in the Northern Territory Parliament now. Like, it was a huh. massive swing against them. There's been like a third independent party introduced who now currently hold more seats than the official opposition in the Northern yeah, Territory. Wow. So it's kind of like this weird three-way contest. Anyway, we'll um, uh, look and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get, maybe do a little bit more of an update on that next week, but something to keep an eye on. And obviously there's you know some really important issues here that are, that are at stake. Uh, for people living in the Northern Territory. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on that one. All right. I think it's now finally time to dive into the sea that is Jordan Shanks and his uh, Twitter storm. We have one more uh, section here that we've written notes for. Um, uh, yes, you... totally. Yeah, soup, no, let's squeeze it in. Soup, I reckon we can get hot it. Hot superannuation. Yeah, nice. There's yeah. the food pun. Tasty yeah. superannuation. There's, you know, soup. You get what I'm saying. You get you pick, picking up what I'm putting down. I am, yeah. That's why we do this podcast together. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, I wouldn't talk about superannuation because uh, it's been in the news a bunch recently and it's going to be in the news a bunch more in the next couple of months. And I thought our listeners might be interested in like a little more detail about what the fight is about that and like the history and context. And yeah, I think it's an interesting story because like, um, you know, there's a, a big debate about increasing the rate of super, and I'll, I'll get into that and explain it in more detail. And I think there's a good argument for both sides, which is rare um, that I think there's a good argument for both sides. But I also think it's worth remembering whenever we talk about superannuation that the whole debate only makes sense if you accept the assumption that the government will completely derelict their duty to look after the citizens of this country. And, of course, the government is derelicting that duty, so that's why I thought it would be worth exploring this issue in a little bit more detail. <laughs> well, so, that's, ba- that's basically the underlying concept behind super, right? Instead of, like, having a livable pension for older people... We're just going to force you to save your own money, but also we're going to force you to put it in the hands of organizations who are going to use that money to invest it and make a whole bunch of profit. Mm. Because well, I think it's really interesting the because the super, uh, the super annuation like industry is a real big point of contention between the labor movement, not the labor party, but like the the. Uh, unions and trades hall and so on. Um, actual labor movement, yeah. The actual labor movement between them and like the conservatives who uh, feel like they should control all the money in the country. Um, and like, yeah, that's I as I said, I think it's weird that there's a, a pretty good argument for both sides um, because normally when it's like Scott Morrison versus the ACTU, I'm like, well, there's no point even listening to what Scott Morrison has to say. But <laughs> in this situation, I think it's a little more complex. So, um, yeah, that's that's why I want to talk about it. So, as you said, Zach, very briefly, superannuation is a compulsory savings account to pay for your retirement so the government doesn't have to pay the aged pension. And this happened because in the 80s, the Hawke government was like, shit, we've got all these baby boomers, they're like 30 now, but by the time they're 60, uh, there's going to be so many of them that we won't be able to pay for their retirement pension. Um, So throughout the 80s and 90s, the Hawke government and then the Keating government implemented this system where a percentage of everyone's wage would be put into an interest-bearing account that they can only access when they retire. Um, And yeah, as I said, so this was put in by Hawke and uh, Keating, who were Labour people and the whole thing was very strongly approved of by the union movement and in fact before it became a government policy superannuation was uh, commonly part, made, uh, agreed 
on as part of integra- enterprise bargaining agreements. So unions would be negotiating with employers, and part of the things that they would demand is a super contribution for the workers. So there's mm. like a long history of unions supporting super and arguing in favor of it and trying to get more super and so on. Because mm. um, so, yeah, at I, a good job, you'll get super on top of what you earn. Like, no. So, well, kind of. The there's a compulsory 10, 9% at the moment that comes out mm. of your wages. Uh, right. So that's deferred wages. Some employers also put in voluntary contributions and then also individuals can put in voluntary contributions. So if you have yes. earned right. a bunch more money this year than you normally do, you might put that into super voluntarily. So basically since the 80s, it's become a huge political shit fight. And as I said, this is largely because the unions set up a bunch of these super funds, which became the default super fund for a bunch of industries. So I worked in hospo for a long time. Whenever I got a job, they would be like, um, you will sign up for Host Plus, which is the hospitality industry super fund that's run by the unions. Um, and these are, quote, industry super funds. So if you hear that, those are the ones that are not for profit. They're run by unions. Um, there's also retail ones, which are like, you can just like decide to put money into a retail super fund. There's also self-managed super funds, which are basically only for extremely rich people. Um, and the conservatives hate the industry super funds because they're very profitable and they're good for the unions. As in, it's good for the institution of the union. I think it's debatable whether it's good for the union members, but maybe. Um, and they're mad because only conservatives are meant to have money. And there's this uh, term that gets used a lot, quote, workers' capital. Um, and the idea is that, like, a huge proportion of Australia's money is in super funds. And that means that the unions have a huge amount of muscle that they can, you know, flex with this money. So they can do it by investing that money into businesses that they support. They can get Mm -hmm. profit from the super funds that they can then put into campaigns of various sorts. Um, And in 2007, industry super funds were worth more than Australia's yearly GDP. So um, they are more than 100% of the Australian economy. Which is wild. Um, so, yeah, the, there's this big kind of like long-running stoush about, oh, unions can't have money, that's only for conservatives. Um, but the current big shit fight that is being uh, played out in the media at the moment is about increasing the amount that's compulsory to take out of the paycheck each week. So currently right. it's at 9.5%, and that has been meant to be going up since 2015, uh, and it's supposed to go up to 125 in a couple of stages. Uh, but Tony Abbott delayed that increase, which, again, uh, rule of thumb, if Tony Abbott did it, it was a terrible idea. So uh, my, my instinct is to be like, oh, we need to increase the super contribution because Tony Abbott didn't do it. Um, there's another shit fight that's been going on about, uh, cause the federal government has allowed people to raid their super to deal with coronavirus. Mm. Um, and it appears that a lot of people committed fraud to do that. And like, um, often it's people who weren't in hardship. They just wanted more spending money or whatever. They didn't want it sitting in their super. Um, I'll just, let me jump in there for one second please. and just, yeah. cause what I'm getting flashbacks to 800 people weren't home. Yeah. Uh, when you hear this kind of messaging from the government or these like official bodies, it's just always really good to take it with a grain of salt. Like, mm. oh, all these people have been misusing this measure. And then we'll find out in like six months that, oh, no, someone misplaced a decimal point at the ATO or some mm. shit mm-hmm. like that. You know what I mean? Yep. Like this That's sounds totally really fair. good because like it's very important for conservative messaging that it's generally believed that most people are very irresponsible with their money and shouldn't be trusted with it. 
Well, I'm not sure that's right, because then the conservatives would be arguing for more super, right? They would be arguing, oh, you don't get to decide how to spend your money. And this is a common, like, ideological aspect of this debate, which is, you know, IPA pickle boys say things like, it's their money, why does the government decide to spend their money? Or what? Like, you know, it's like, they worked for that and they should decide how to do it, blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, what led to the government being like, yeah, 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 raid your super, perfect like it's your money do it but also those people who read their super are going to have way less money for retirement right because like every dollar that you put loss. in now yeah. it, it it's huge because of compounding interest and because of like investments that the super funds are making and so on mm. so and as yeah. we mentioned uh where we've talked about this very briefly previously that like because on average women have much less super than men yes drawing down on your super early is going to have disproportionately larger effect on women so again we see so, like the gendered result of the government's policy response to that's corona, absolutely yeah. right and i've got a quote here from the human rights commission the average superannuation payout for women is a third of the payout for men 37000 compared with 110000 that's, that's actually so much bigger than i thought it was i Jesus know Christ. that's right i mean it's the holly's rule it's even more fucked and sexist than you <laughs> thought um and uh, there's another shit fight going on that's kind of been quiet down recently it was big when uh Turnbull and bill were the the main players and that was about uh an idea to legislate uh that there's a proportion of non-union members on the boards of industry super funds so basically right. like no 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 we want conservative business people to go and make decisions for these union uh industry super funds um, but that hasn't really been coming up a whole lot recently it's mainly this issue about increasing up to 12.5 percent and so if like so theoretically basically the government is going to be anti that because they want super funds industry super funds to have less money because that's as you say leverage for the union movement and the union movement is pro increasing the amount of super because they see it as good then for then they workers. will have more money yeah. yeah. Well, also because it's good for workers. But, um, and I, I will get to this in a minute because this is what I think the actual debate is about is about how it will impact people's retirement. Um, okay. But before I get there, I wanted to just say that this whole fight between conservatives and unionists about super is very silly because um, it's, it's, it's class war that's against the interests of the people involved because super is way more profitable for wealthy people than it is for poor people and it entrenches inequality over decades. And that's basically because there's an option to voluntarily put money into your super at extremely low tax rates, people who have more money than they know what to do with can put it into their super and then later on they get paid for it, whereas poor people, they don't get to put more in and then they get less out at the end. So Mm. if there's someone with a lot of money at age 20 and someone who doesn't have a lot of money at age 20, by the time they cash out their super at 60, that gap will be significantly larger. The wealthy person will be much wealthier than that poor person. Mm. So yeah, I think that's kind of silly that the conservatives resent it so much because it's basically a tax haven for wealthy people. And that's what self-managed super funds are for, more or less, yeah. is to for people to like get a tax haven. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but yeah, I, I guess that's like one of the key reasons why privatizing like retirement for the nation is kind of a yeah. fucked idea because it's yeah. obviously going to be tied to the amount of money that you bring in as opposed to a standard quality of living that everybody should have, for example. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't really have a direct link here, but I think it's really, you know, we talked about aged care, I don't know if that was last week or the week before, and just like the completely fucked situation that the Australian aged care industry is in. And yeah. I feel like there's a direct 
link, albeit one that I can't quite articulate, between the government being like, fuck you, old people, we're not going to pay your pension, you better save, and then being like, fuck you, old people, your aged care homes are dysfunctional and you will be left to starve for days on end. Um, well, they're both uh, privatization of like yeah. the, of the supporting people for the final couple decades of their life, right? That's right. It's what that's I was saying the- about derelicting the duty to care for the citizens. It's just like different angles on that dereliction. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I think it's important to recognize the role that privatization has played in that and government policy over the years. But as I mentioned, when we talked about the aged care crisis here in Victoria, like there is a strong societal attitude element to this that needs to be looked at as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which I think is key to this. I don't think you can put it down specifically to financial policy. I think that there's Mm, also kind mm. of an attitude thing here as well. But look, I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of ins and outs. And I think, like, this issue seems kind of dry, but um, I'm actually really enjoying this um, breakdown of it because it pulls in a whole lot of different, like, economic and social and ideological mm. uh, strands. It's kind of interesting. Sorry, go on. Good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I hope our listeners are as well. Um, yeah, so anyway, as I said, the main argument that's going on at the moment is that compulsory super contributions are scheduled to go up next year, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember exactly. I think it's supposed to go up to 10.11 and then 12.5 over six years or something. So two 1.5% increases. Um, and conservatives are on the warpath again trying to get that rise delayed slash and brackets cancelled um and again that's for ideological reasons tony abbott did it because he hates super um and they're trying to do it again now for the same reason but there's a bunch of relatively progressive groups like acos the australian council of social services and the grattan institute who have also come out against this increase in super which i found very surprising Hmm. Um, and the Gretton Institute has done a lot of research on this. So, listeners, if you want more, just search Gretton Super or something like that, and they've just got miles of reports. Um, and one of the things they found is that the current rate, 9.5%, is pretty good at supporting people in retirement and that, quote, many low-income Australians will get a rise in pay when they retire, which is cool. Um, and they, the Gretton Institute also found that this uh, 2.5% uh reduction in wages now, right? So from 9.5% up to 12%, uh, maybe it's 3%, 12.5%, whatever. This is not super important. But like they found that this 2.5% reduction in wages now would produce only 1% more income in retirement. So it's actually a really diminishing return on investment at this point. Um, and yeah, wow. that's because if you save more money, the government gives you less in age pension. They asset test people on their super. So if you invest more now, the government pays less later. And um, so there's this like, yeah, really diminishing return for this compulsory super contribution. Mm. And there are other like dry economic statistics about why it's bad um, that I don't want to go into like the numbers about, but basically increasing super contributions will probably reduce the number of jobs created and the uh, wage growth. And those have already been pretty flat for like the last couple of years. So it might like wage growth might go down as a result, or there might be less like uh, jobs lost each month or whatever. Um, And again, this, these kinds of like economic statistics or whatever, are important to think about only so long as the government refuses to support people to survive and like live a nice life. Um, but which they are about doing. job creation and wage exactly which they are, and that's why I decided to spend twenty minutes talking <laughs> about this. Uh, and it's 
those issues about job creation and wage growth and stuff are more of an issue now during a pandemic where people could really use every dollar, uh, right? Like people who mm. are doing tough, they could use that extra 2.5% each week. And it's like, it's not heaps, it's like $5 a week or whatever. So maybe it's not such a big deal, but over a year, that's 250 or uh, Anyway, um, so yeah, in conclusion, I'm a bit worried that I might agree with Scott Morrison that the compulsory super contribution increase is bad. Um, I'm not Probably 100% for different reasons, that. though. Yeah, yeah. I think he does. It's always the broken it's bad for ideological reasons, and I think there's like evidence for why it might not be a great move. <laughs> um, but again, Just I don't feel tell weird him where I'm like potentially siding with Scott Morrison ahead of the ACTU, who are like, fuck yeah, we need this 12.5%. We should do it sooner than um, is scheduled, and like all this other stuff. So yeah, but when ACOS and Grattan are both skeptical or critical about it i think that is um yeah really worth uh thinking about independently and like yeah i don't have a strong view about it uh mainly because i feel uncomfortable with the view that i've mostly developed but uh yeah well i'd be interested to hear from any listeners who you know i know Absolutely. we've got a lot of listeners who are uh involved in the union movement in various mm. capacities and uh might have a little bit more insight into this and Please. be able to shed some light so Please send in a potluck or, um, you know, Pop get on us on, on the socials like, yep. or, on the, or in the Discord. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for that, Noon. As I said, I enjoyed that more than I expected to. Oh, that's great. That's good news. Hopefully the same <laughs> for the listeners. Uh, turns out that soup wasn't too dry. All right. Um, well, it looks like we have done a full hour of podcasting. I'm not actually sure that we're going to have time to get to our friendly Geordie's deep dive, um, which is a shame. There was because, so much stuff that we wanted to talk about there. Yeah, um, and now that we've done our full hour friendly Geordie special, we're actually not allowed to talk about him ever again on the podcast. Yeah. So that's um, it. Yeah, that's that's it. I hope you enjoyed our friendly Geordie's full hour special. Um, before we get out of here, we just wanted to shout out a new review we got from. None other than Scotty from Marketing on Apple Podcasts. It's he nice gave us five listening. stars, said that we're better than most for OzPod coverage. Very kind. And also highlighted that we have well-organized segments, which I really appreciated. Thank you for pointing that out, Scotty. Yes, we do organize our segments. I feel like it, the show is quite well-structured, personally. Hmm. I think it's one of our strengths. So if you, like Scotty, enjoy the show, uh, we would love it if you left a review. On iTunes, the Apple Podcast is the best place for you to do it, but anywhere else you can leave reviews is much appreciated, or if on Facebook or whatever. Otherwise, share us around on your socials with your parents and other people that you know. That's also cool. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, we do have a Patreon if you feel so inclined to support us financially. As we said, as little as $1 a month gets you a monthly bonus episode plus extra cool this stuff. This month, we're going to be doing a sort of biographical deep dive into some feminists in Australia, uh, historical feminists. So we've each picked someone to talk about. I did a, I, I was really excited to learn about the person uh, that, that I'm going to be talking about. So yeah, um, hop on Patreon, give us a buck, and that will probably be out this week, maybe next week. Um, yeah. it's, com- it's coming before the end of the month, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, and our previous bonus episodes have been on uh, the Palace Letters. We've also we've done a deep dive into QAnon and also Sovereign Citizens. Uh, lots of fun stuff. So if you need a little bit more snack pot in your life, that's where you can get it. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, as always, uh, keep on snacking in the free world. Well, back to that, are we? All right. I guess so. Well, fuck cups. Crunch, crunch. <laughs>